Unsexy Business with Jamie Waller. Hi, this is Jamie Waller and welcome to my new series of podcasts called Unsexy Business. The podcast ties in with the release of my new book of the same name, details on that later. In this series, I'll be talking to a range of business owners and entrepreneurs. This isn't about Silicon Valley style corporations or the latest tech initiative. This is about traditional business models, thoughts and plans that could easily have begun in a pub or your own garden shed. Simple ideas that have become multi-million pound companies. It's these stories that interest me. From plumbers to parking, penny suites to second-hand cars, I'll be meeting the people behind some of Britain's most successful businesses. Welcome to Unsexy Business. My guest this week is Mike Clare. Mike is the founder of Dreams, the bed superstore. He opened his first loan furniture shop in West London back in 1985. Today there are over 170 stores nationwide. Mike sold the company in 2008 for £222 million. I began by asking him what made him start his own business in the first place. Well, I'd always wanted to start my own So I would try and start all sorts of businesses. I've got them in my archive somewhere of all little things I wanted to start. So I started a business called Pillow Talk. And that was, uh, I bought a load of pillowcases from the east end of London, white pillowcases, and you screen printed them. Uh, and one side it said, let's cuddle. And the other uh, side it said, I'm tired. And the idea was whether you want to have sex. Instead of, like, you have a little code with your, with your partner, you just put your pillow on one side or the other. Let's cuddle or I'm tired, you see. So I thought, it was, and I went and sold them in Covent Garden shops and I hawked them round and I did this. This is still what I'm working, but I, on my day off, go and hawk these pillowcases around uh, as sort of novelty, jokey, sort of cheeky sort of things for yourself. And uh, my mother and you used to iron them and things like that. And then I did condensation balls which is like, you know, I had had my own problem, really. So I obviously had a problem where I didn't know whether my partner, whoever I was with, wanted sex or not. So I thought, I've got to invent this pillow <laughs> problem. And um, you could buy this chemical that, that absorbs all the moisture, so your windows don't steam up, and, it all, and you put it on, on a ball, and it goes into a, like, a pot underneath. You can buy them now, and loads of people do. But anyway, I bought this chemical from somewhere and tried to do that. So anyway, so that's that. So I did all these things. I'm still working for like I think I was then might have been doing office furniture in London. But I still always had a full time salary job. These were sort of side things that I would do. And I daren't leave my salary job because, you know, I had a mortgage and too risky. Until, you know, then my at my most risky time, um, my wife's pregnant with our first child. I'm just about thirty, so it's like a milestone thing. We got a mortgage, we just moved house, lived in Beaconsfield. And I think, look, I can't stand all these little part-time businesses from my bedroom. Uh, and I've got to start a business. So um, so that's where I started with my first shop, Sofa Beds. The first Sofa Bed store, I was working for a company called WH Deans in Wooden Green. And I was their sales director. And it was office furniture company. And I'd moved out of London. And I was working for this, it sounds like I had a lot of jobs, but I was 30 <laughs> then. But anyway, so I was sales director. So obviously someone thought well of me. And I, I'd opened my first store and uh, I had three or four reps that were under me um, that would go around and sell this office furniture. And they, and I obviously, was, I got a manager to run the first uh, sofa bed store. So I was doing that actually while I was still working there. But one of my reps found out I was doing this. It's all like blackmail. Oh my, why do you keep going to that sofa bed shop? In, uh, you know, and they knew and... You know, I had to sign the expenses off, and I thought this is like a blackmail thing. But they were quite discreet about it, and they knew for about six weeks. And then I just thought, 
this isn't possible. Cutting my staff, knowing that I'm doing another business and I'm trying to make them work hard and hit my bonus and target. And I was sort of like, I knew I was going to be caught out, and, and I knew I was shouldn't be a sales director, and I've got my own shop that I'm running. And I, but so I, I obviously I wasn't in the shop all day because I had staff in there that was running it. But it was my first shop, so it did need quite a lot of involvement. And I did used to go there at weekends and. You know, and I would do the books in the evening and deliveries in the evening and all sorts of things I would be doing myself. And it didn't become limited till we started Called It Dreams. So that was the big story about when I went to my accountant and said, I need to be, I was Mike Clare proprietor trading as, and I'd got up to four stores without being a limited company, all selling sofa beds. And then I had the big thing. Sofa beds were very trendy. This was four futons. So they were all... Um, before that, they were called studio couches and put-you-ups and bed settees and everyone's granny had one and they were ugly and boring and uncomfortable. And then someone in America called them a sofa bed and it goes, all right. And everyone wanted one and they all like pull out. And, you know, and so we just specialised just in sofa beds. And, and everyone was saying, all oh, these sofa beds are the new things. It was sort of like a bit of inside gossip that sofa beds are taken on. No one really specialised in. So I thought, I'm just going to specialise in sofa beds. It's like specialising coffee tables or specialising in some thing. Years ago, there used to be just furniture stores, and then someone started doing carpets separately, and then they started doing pine, and then they do beds, and then everyone would segregate, and now that you have oak furniture, don't you, or you have sofa companies like DFS, but no one years ago would do separate products, and, and you know, I did sofa beds, because it was a new thing. There was, there was no business plan, so I have the idea that I want to sell sofa beds. I find a store in Hillingdon, that, um, so I look for somewhere I've got to have a showroom. So I find this place, and it's an old car parts store that sold gearboxes and brakes and calipers and all sorts. Of, and it had oil on the floor. It had a concrete floor, no carpet. And it just sold car parts, and it smelled of oil, and it was like that. But it was a really cheap lease in Hillingdon. And the landlord said, if you take the store next door, which was also empty, and not in such a bad state, he'd do it for like, I don't know, not double the price, but... Well, you know, a little bit of a 50% extra if you took two stores together. But they had a big brick wall between them. So he said, you can knock through. I did that. I knocked through the wall myself. <laughs> and uh, and then I, so I had a double that. But it was twice the, the amount of space that I thought I'd want. But I thought, I mean, in hindsight, within six months, it was too small for us, even both stores. So we, we took that lease. And I didn't really think about where the goods were going to be delivered, stored, and any of the logistics and deliveries. So I designed the sign. Um, Highest quality, had arrows. Highest quality, lowest prices. And uh, then I say, um, the sofa bed, it's called the sofa bed centre. It was originally Thames seating because, oh, I know, it was why it was Thames seating. Because I also used to sell office chairs. That was a little sideline I did. Because when I was selling my office furniture, and I was the sales director, everyone wanted to buy the desks and the filing cabinets and all the filing storage and all that sort of system. But they didn't sell. The company I worked for didn't sell office chairs. Everyone wanted office chairs. with. That's the easiest thing, because you haven't got to plan them in, because the desks all had to spot sizes and drawers. It was all complicated. But chairs, it's the easiest thing. You just have a chair, you put it there. And it's like, all well, ergonomics is good for your back, and then make you type better. And then. So um, I started selling office chairs. So we were called Thames Seating, selling office chairs, that then morphed into sofa beds, because it was the same company. So actually, our VAT number at Dreams... I used to always tell people I had to be VAT registered for um, the pillowcases. I then didn't deregister, and then I was selling office furniture with that same VAT number. But your VAT number is relevant to your trade. If you, you know, you're a food retailer or you, you manufacture widgets, you have a certain your number. If you knew VAT numbers, would 
And even when I went on to Dreams, I still had that same VAT number that was related to pillowcases. And no, I was absolutely confident that this is going to work and it's, you know, total belief. So risky because I could have lost the house. Gareth Braden, you know, it's like, it was very risky, but, you know. But that, you see, unless you've got real proper risk, it doesn't get you up on a Sunday morning at six o'clock, you know, to do the books and whatever. And, you know, if it was easy, if I just won some lottery money or someone had given me some money and I invested in that, I would never have tried. So when I had all my down moments and things nearly went tits up, I, they would have gone, it would have gone bust. But because I knew everything was on the line, you just can't let that happen. So there's some extra drive within you that, that, that pushes you forward. So unless you risk everything, I would honestly, most of unless you really put everything on the line, it, it's a lot less likely it's going to succeed because you'll just give up at the first problem. We don't give up. You won't try as hard as you really, really would if, you know, everything's on the line. The best thing about that that morphed into dreams and, and, and all the expansions Every year, where well, I always had this thing that when I sold it, I'd never had a year where the turnover was less than the previous year. I never had a year where the profit was less than the previous year. So every year increased. And that is such an exciting. So everyone would want to join and work before you. And it was like, wow, this is like quite relentless. And it, and it make, makes it fun. You're listening to Unsexy Business. And my guest this week is Mike Clare, the founder and CEO of Dreams. Once I got on to say ten stores, or I was all my time was 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 devoted to the expansion, so I wouldn't be doing the operations. All I would do, so it's such an easy formula. So I would, you wouldn't want to have a store where you couldn't find. So, so I would drive up to the next town geographically. So I'd go to Milton Keynes or where I'm going to Watford or wherever the next geographical town was. I drive around there and I drive around the main streets and look for a store to let. It says lease for sale or whatever. So I'd ring the landlord, negotiate a really good deal. And then uh, I'd order the sign, put down the blue carpet, put an advert in the local paper, situations vacant salesman wanted, order in the stock, have a grand opening, invite the mayor, have a cake in the shape of a bed, uh, and, and then we'd go move on to the next door. And, I'd do, and every time we perfected something, did the desk in a different way or, or something like that. There's a good thing about beds because no one knows what's inside them because they haven't got a zip and you can't look in the, look at the springs or the foams or like that. It's just like, whoa, it's all a bit of an thing. People don't like to lay on them in shops and things like that. And we lay them all out and we say, these are pockets sprung and this is that. But people like are all very shy about beds. And it's a funny thing. And it's the, you know, it's the beds are the most used item in your home. It's, you know, a third of your life you spend in bed. It's, I don't know, a place of refuge in times of sickness. Most people are born in a bed, most people die in a bed, most people are conceived in a bed. So, you know, it's a pretty important thing in your life, but people don't really understand what they are. So, you know, we, we used to do education, we do the bed selector thing, so well, what size do you want, or what price do you want to pay, or do you like it soft or hard, or this, that and the other, you know. What always amazes me, and it still amazes me, is that two people meet at a disco or something, fall in love and get married... Buy a double or king size or super king size bed, and somehow they compromise on what comfort level they like. So everyone likes a different sort of bed, but couples have to compromise. But when you meet someone at the disco, you you don't say, "Do you like a firm bed or a soft bed?" In case we get married, but they somehow these people you actually do do beds to soft one side and firm the other. But I always sort of am amazed that people sort of like couples buy a bed that. Has to suit both of them. 
And it's how to sell a bed, you see. You must never, salesmen should never stand at the end of a bed. That's the bed. And you're trying to get the customer to lay down. Because once a customer lays down, they're interacting. They're much more likely to, to want to buy. Uh, but they're very shy to lay down. But if you stand at the end of a bed, especially most of the bed salesmen are men, um, and girls have got a skirt on, it's a bit embarrassing. So you should always stand to the side. And if they don't want to lay on the bed, the salesman should lay on the bed, on not the bed that you want them to lay on, but the bed next to that. And to say, oh, no, everyone lays on them. Look, I'm laying on one. You know, most people go into three bed stores before um, they buy. And so we had to, have to try and find out, is, it, um, is this their first store they've been into or, or the third one? So we did the sofa beds for sort of two years-ish, really. And then we got into beds. And then we would only open about, I say only, but we opened four branches in two years. So that is a lot. And then we only did two or three branches a year for the next sort of five or six years. And then suddenly we got the formula right and we would become a bit... I mean, as soon as we hit TV, that was, that was a big... But that was after about 10 or 10, 11 years. And we'd got a head office and we'd got IT department of finance and HR and we got like the whole company was all sort of more set up then. If we went to a town, it, it sounds a bit mercenary, but this is business, isn't it? It's what I'm talking about in this book. There aren't more people if we move to, I don't know, Lincoln or Norwich. No, there, there aren't going to be any more beds sold when we move there. Someone's not going to sell beds if we move, open the branch there. And it's normally, we call them mamas and papas stores. I used to call them Fred's Beds. That's my generic name for an independent bed retailer. And the, and the, and the industry is, was 60-70% independent people. Because it was a low barrier to entry. It's an easy thing to buy and sell. And people would say, and they'd never really expand. And they'd just have one store. Or maybe they'd have two or three. And they'd be a, they'd call themselves big. And then we'd have like about 50 or 100 stores. And we'd open the thing. And this is a bad thing to say, but... We used to have this song, which was by Queen, called Another One Bites the Dust. And another one's gone, and another one's gone, and another one bites the dust. And we used to like, play that, because these independents used to go, as soon as we moved into town, they would like shit themselves, and they'd do all these things. We're going to fight back, we don't want multiples coming to our town, and things like that, you know. And we would splash our prices to start with really aggressively, not really meant to do that. We'd be really cheap, like you, and, you know, they'd close down within six months, which is not nice, but that, that I suppose, is business, isn't it? But we ended up making our own, our own factory become the largest bed manufacturer in, in the country. So we used to deal with Slumberland and Myers and Hypnos and Vicepring and all these sort of bed manufacturers. And we'd become their biggest customer. And we were worried that they couldn't keep up with our demand. And they didn't want us to be... There's all that, that rule, you shouldn't be more than 30... Your turnover shouldn't be more than 30% with one customer. And we were becoming big 50% of some of these manufacturers' turnover. And, and they didn't want us to do more with them. But we were opening more branches, so we had to buy more from them. So we, we started our own factory, and we thought they'd all really object about that. But in the end, it, it worked well, and we posted a few people from bed factories that knew how to make beds, because I've got no idea. And that, we then were buying springs and, 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 and fabric and stuff, and making mattresses and things like that. And then we were retailing, so we had the manufacturer's margin and the retail margin. I would know how much the springs were, so the manufacturers say, well, Mike have a bit of a price rise because you know price of steel's gone up because the Chinese are building a lot more bridges and therefore steel's gone up and the springs are more and therefore we got charged another five percent you see and well I'd know I'd be buying the springs I'd say no that's bollocks uh, they haven't if you go to that supplier you can buy springs the same price and all the exchange rate and the, and the shipping charge so I would know so much about the cost of manufacturing and that helped me negotiate with and we only ever supplied about a third of 
made a third of our own. We still wanted Silent Night and Sealy and all these other brands. So we still had those brands and they were happy and, and uh, we still dealt with them. So, but I could negotiate with them. When I sold the business, I still had a mortgage on my house in Beckinshire. So I not, uh, lived in Churchill House. I, um, I, paid, I had a mortgage and I had about 800,000 mortgage. So the house was worth about 3.5. So I had a decent bit of equity in it, but I had, uh, still had a mortgage. So I've got a business that I, that's worth 200 and odd million and I've got an 800,000 mortgage, personally. But why? Because I never took any money out of the business. So all my expansion was always put back in the business. So any money it made, I never took it out. So a lot of people would go and buy a big villa somewhere and loads of yachts and things like that and all sorts of... But I, I left all the money in the business. So it was very risky. And then when I sold the business, like... All these wealth advisors and oh, what are we going to do with your money, Mike? And they all want a bit of, you know, some commission to look after your money, Smith Williamson type people. Um, and they um, they said, "What's your risk profile?" So I said, "Well, you know, uh, ten is really risky and one is not risky. Everyone says six or seven. I don't know why they have one to ten, but everyone says six or six or seven. So I say my normal six or seven. I go right. Well, you realise that all your wealth at the moment has been. This is when I just sold the business." You were at 10. So I said, what, what do you mean? They said, we had all your money, your wealth, was 200 and odd million, that's what you told me for, was in one company. So it could have been a watchdog or something terrible happened to it. So you had, that, that's how you've been running your life, with all your wealth in one company. So your risk factor 10. So you actually thought, oh, I never realised that. And that's, that's how it was, really. Because uh, I'd never taken that. I sort of, at least sort of, you know, yeah, I could have taken a five, ten million pound dividend or something like that and paid my mortgage off and, you know, bought a yacht and things like that. But I didn't. I sort of... So, you know, it all came as a bit of a shock when, you, when, when it was sold, you know. It, it was a purpose. It was something you're proud of. You'd be invited to things. You were the chairman of dreams and it was doing well. And, you, you know, there wasn't really any risk or worry. Um, you know, I suppose there's always a risk that something might happen, but... It was relatively safe once, once we'd got to a certain size and we were the largest bedroom. And that was my sort of aim, and I'd wanted to be the largest... So when people said, oh, what are you doing it for? I said I wanted to be the largest bedroom in the UK. And I sort of near enough achieved that, and that's one of the reasons why I think we eventually sold, you know. We never thought we'd sell it for as much as we did, to be honest. I thought, you know, we're going to sell it for a lot less than that. But let's decide to sell the business. We decided in about May... We thought about it for about a month on how I'm going to do it. We then told a few of the directors secretly. We then went out to try and find advisors. And then it sort of officially went on the market in about September. And then we sold it in March. So, yeah, that, that was a whole journey and process. That was like a massive learning curve and very busy because you have to keep the business running because the people want to know, well, how was the business last week? And right up to the last minute, they how's the business trading last week? So you've got to keep the business really going. You've got to keep the plate spinning. And then you've also got to deal with this whole city stuff, with all how you deal with all these people. And, you know, so you're running, dealing with selling it, and then you've got to keep the business running. And you don't know until the actual, that deal's done. So we did it 11 o'clock on Friday. It was a, uh, March the, the 8th, uh, 2008. It was a Friday, 11 o'clock at night. And you don't know until it's done that it's not, you know, it might not. By the last minute, there might be some hitch. So you can't sort of think, right, well, I'm going to plan a holiday or I'm going to do this. Or So then the, uh, we had three banks funding it all, funding exponents. So each bank had their own meeting room. 
Then Exponent, who brought us, had their own meeting room. Then we had John Clare, who was going to, just no relation, but his surname was Clare Weird, uh, was going to be the new chairman. He had his own meeting room. Then our management team, which is Nick Worthington and all my directors, had their own meeting room. And I had my own meeting room with my own lawyers, and everyone had their own meeting rooms. And then it was just a surreal, bloody experience. Because every time I went to one of these big meetings, everyone said, like, I know what you like. Entrepreneurs all the same. You, you, you're going to lose your temper. You're going to shout and think something's unreasonable. And you're going to storm out of the, the room and things like that. Um, and uh, that's how it works. But, you know, they, they are going to put you under pressure and on the deal. And every time I went to these meetings in the city... I would, when it's all like huge offices and you get a lift and there's hundreds of meeting rooms, there's all these very city people and I'm not used to all that. And I wish you to check where the exit was. And so if I storm out, but the worst thing, if I walk the wrong way and I like the other, so I would like, as I'm walking out, I said, this might be where I storm out. So I'm, I, and then, and I'd say, okay, I'll go down there to the lifts and so I don't look an idiot. And, and then when I sold, one of the biggest disappointments, I never lost my temper. I'd like, well, when did I look? I wanted to do that. <laughs> I never did it. <laughs> Don't forget, there are 11 business leaders in this series, all with different stories about how they took a very simple idea and transformed it into a multi-million pound success. Sometimes traditional thinking really does pay. All of the interviews featured in Unsexy Business are also featured in my new book of the same name. There you can read the more in-depth stories behind these entrepreneurs and their impressive journeys to success. There's also one or two anecdotes that we couldn't possibly put into the podcast, along with hundreds of tips on how you can start and build a successful business too. If you get over to Amazon, you can buy a hard copy or digital version of Unsexy Business now. It is also for sale in most major bookshops, including Waterstones and WH Smith. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe on your podcast app. This means that you'll get each new episode automatically. Do join me next time, and until then, goodbye.